King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, What should I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the Bible. We are thankful for this text, which we know is written for our instruction. Heavenly Father, would you use it? Would you give us soft hearts and open eyes and unstopped ears? to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning, and would you be glorified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Apostles Church. Uh, I just want to begin by saying that I am extremely thankful and extremely grateful that uh, I have this privilege of opening the Word of God to you guys this morning. Uh, You have been my church family, Jaylene and my church family now for Uh, almost two years, and it's been great. And I want to also say thank you uh, to our elders, to to Ryan and to Joe and to Daniel, who is is not here, also uh, for the privilege of being able to to preach this morning at Apostles. So thank you very much. And I want to venture to guess that most of us probably have not heard a sermon on the beheading of John the Baptist. Typically, it does not fall into the top five texts that preachers cannot wait to get their hands on uh, as, they want to, as they preach God's word. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I heard Ryan and Daniel in their office discussing this, saying something along the lines of, hey, let's give this one to the new guy. Let's see what he does. So that's actually a complete, complete falsehood. Um, they did not say that. And I'm, I'm extremely thankful that we do not avoid any text of scripture uh, in this church. Outsource maybe, but avoid uh, definitely not. 
Well, let me start by placing this text in context. Last week, we began by learning about the disciples' successful first preaching campaign, starting in verse 7 and continuing to verse 13 of Mark chapter 6. The disciples are faithfully proclaiming that people should repent. They are healing people. They are casting out demons. And that account gets interrupted by the text we have before us this morning, which is a flashback to the beheading of John the Baptist by King Herod. Next week, starting in verse 30, we'll pick up again the story of the disciples' successful ministry tour, starting with them reporting back to Jesus about everything they have seen and done and going on to participate with Jesus in teaching and feeding 5,000 people. So contained in verses 7 through 44 of Mark chapter 6, we have an account of ministry suffering embedded within an account of ministry success. And that juxtaposition inspired the title of the message today, which is Proclamation and Persecution. And it also inspired a question, why would Mark arrange the text this way? My answer to that question is the big idea of today's sermon. The Holy Spirit, working through the pen of Mark, wants us to know that faithful proclamation will provoke fierce persecution until Christ returns. I want to say that one more time. Faithful proclamation will provoke fierce persecution until Christ returns. Let me start also by defining my terms as I begin the message. I will use the term persecution synonymously with the term spiritual warfare or spiritual opposition since Satan ultimately is the author of all persecution against God's people. Now viewed this way, persecution is part of the normal Christian life. And Paul says this explicitly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is therefore either the present reality or the future expectation of every Christian. It will look different in Santa Barbara than it does in Sudan or Saudi Arabia, but it is no less real. Now, the message this morning is a very serious and sobering message, but my prayer and my hope is that it will also be one that lifts our souls. It's also a message of encouragement. Now, God used the persecution of his son on the cross to bring about the salvation of the world. Similarly, God will use the persecution of the church to preach Christ to the world and to purify the church and prepare the bride of Christ to meet the bridegroom. My hope is that we will leave here with diminished fear and greater faith in the goodness, the kindness, and the sovereignty of God. Well, before we turn our attention to these events about 2,000 years ago in the Roman world, these historical events, I want to draw our attention to some history that is being made right now during this church service. And that history is represented by the names and faces and prison sentences of some modern day John the Baptist on the screen behind me. These five men are pastors in prison as we speak. Their crime is faithful proclamation. I want to honor them by reading their names and their prison sentences. Starting from the left, 
Zhang Xiaoji, China, arrested November 2013, sentenced 12 years. Kim Kuk Ji, North Korea, arrested December 2014, sentenced life imprisonment with hard labor. Zafar Bhatti, Pakistan, arrested July 2012, sentenced death. Anushivan Avidian, Iran, arrested September 2023, sentenced 10 years. Musi Izaz, Eritrea, arrested September 2007, sentenced indefinite. These are pastors, these are husbands, these are fathers, these are sons. And these five men represent tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of men and women imprisoned for their faith today. In North Korea alone, there are an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned for their faith as we speak. And these prisoners are a living demonstration, again, of the big idea of today's text, that faithful proclamation will provoke fierce persecution until Christ returns. Well, now to the text. I put up an outline of kind of three movements that we will go through, so we, we know where we're going this morning. There are three broad categories in the message. I want to start by exegeting the darkness, that is, going verse by verse and explaining, expanding upon, and interpreting the 16 verses that were just read for us this morning. After that, I want to, I want to go on to excavating the light. That is, we want to look beneath the dark text and find the light of Christ and the light of the gospel in that text. And then I want to look at examining our lives, where the goal is to apply the text to our lives, exegeting the darkness, excavating the light, and examining our lives. Well, I've divided the first part of this, exegeting the darkness, into four sections. And they are a guilty conscience, a grievous marriage, a gluttonous banquet, and a gruesome execution. A guilty conscience, a grievous marriage, a gluttonous banquet, and a gruesome execution. Well, let's start with a guilty conscience in verses 14 through 16, along with verse 20. Verse 14 starts with, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Well, the it is referring to the preaching, healing, and casting out of demons done by the disciples in Jesus' name, which we heard about last week. Now, Herod is going to interpret these events through the lens of his guilty conscience. A key statement is found in verse 16. Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, Herod knows that what he has done, Herod knows that what he, what he has done, and, and the execution of John weighs heavily on his conscience. Now, verse 20 gives us a little bit more insight into the relationship between Herod and verse 10, it explains why this is so heavy for him. And in verse 20, we read that for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod clearly had a high regard for John, and interestingly, the text says that he kept him safe. Now, some commentators believe that Herod imprisoned John to protect him from the murderous intentions of his wife, Herodias. Nevertheless, we're going to read that Herod eventually caves to the manipulation of Herodias and to the expectations of his dinner guests whom he does not want to disappoint, and he will have John 
executed. Now, I'm going to pause just for a moment. I'm going to ask somebody, maybe, to get me a glass of water or a, or a bottle of water because I forgot to bring that up with me. So, uh, thank you. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. All right. We can keep going. Didn't go perfectly. Forgot the water. So, uh, now, I mentioned, now, now we're going to read that, that, Harris, that Herod caves in and he executes John, and this is going to weigh heavily on Herod. Herod has killed John, but he cannot kill his conscience. Herod has deep regret, but no repentance, as we will see. And in the absence of repentance, that conscience is going to lead him to mistake the work of Jesus for the work of a resurrected John. Now, famously, John says in one of the Gospels, he says of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. But in Herod's haunted mind, John looms exceedingly large, and Jesus has diminished to nothing. Well, the text is a warning to us. An unrepentant heart and a guilty conscience that is not dealt with will lead to an inability to see Jesus for who he is. And ultimately, Herod's choices are going to harden his heart, and about two years later, Herod will join another weak ruler named Pontius Pilate in enabling the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 23, verses 7 through 12. When Pilate learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. In Herod's mind, Jesus has been reduced to a magician, and when he does not perform, Herod will subject him to mockery. And ultimately, King Herod and Pontius Pilate, men of considerable power, will do nothing to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, Herod's guilty conscience proceeded from a series of events that began with his grievous marriage to Herodias, described in verses 17 through 19. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to put, wanted him put to death, but she could not. Now John the Baptist is going to call this marriage lawless, and to understand this a little bit better, I want to take a look at a simplified family tree of the Herodian dynasty that is up on the screen. At the top of this chart is Herod, <clears throat> Herod the Great, who plays prominently in the Christmas story. Now, Herod the Great has four sons, two of whom appear in this text, and all of the characters in this text are indicated by the dashed boxes and the dashed lines in that family tree. Now, Herod has Herod Antipas, who is the Herod of this story, and he also has Herod's brother, Philip. 
Herodias, who is the niece of both Herod and Philip, will, marry, will be married to Philip. She will give birth to a daughter who will dance at Herod's birthday party. That daughter is not named in the Bible, but Josephus, the Jewish, the Jewish historian Josephus, will tell, her that her, tell us that her name was Salome. I will use that name going forward. Now Herodias, the niece of Philip, will leave Philip and marry her other uncle, Herod Antipas, who is in this text. Now John the Baptist will confront this marriage between Herod and Herodias. He will call it lawless. And undoubtedly, in his mind, he has Leviticus 20.21, also on the screen below the family tree. And it says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. John's message to Herod and Herod was simply this. Marriage is not defined or legitimized by mere human desire but only by the laws of God. And John courageously called a powerful man to repentance, and he paid for it with his life. John did not align himself with political power, but he preached to power, and the church today is called to do the same, proclaiming that the only definition of marriage consistent with the laws of God is the union between one man and one woman for life. Now, this faithful proclamation can and will continue to provoke persecution. Well, because of John's faithful proclamation, Herodias nurtured murderous intentions toward the prophet John. And those intentions find an opportunity for fulfillment at the birthday party of her illegitimate husband. Herod will invite the nobles, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee to a banquet. And I call this a gluttonous banquet because it is a banquet of perverse appetites, in which the main course will be the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 21 starts with, but an opportunity came. Now, interestingly, the New International Version says the opportune time came, which parallels the language in Luke chapter 4, where we are told that Satan, after tempting Jesus in the wilderness, departed until an opportune time. So the, the similarity of the language is a hint that although Herodias is the lead actor in the murder of John, that ultimately Herodias is a puppet and Satan is the puppeteer. Well, verse 22 records Salome's dance, which pleased Herod and the men present. And many commentators see the dance of Salome as an erotic dance, but there's actually nothing in the text that allows us to say that with certainty. But there's some good reasons to believe that is the case. First, this is a gathering exclusively of men. Secondly, Salome appears later in the text to be a very shrewd and active participant in the manipulation of Herod, acting in concert with Herodias to secure John's execution. And thirdly, the reckless response of Herod to the dance, offering Salome up to half the kingdom, suggests both a drunken party and something more than an innocent dance of a young girl going on here. Now, to the gruesome execution that is going to conclude the text in verses 24 through 29. In verse 25, we're going to see again 
the appearance of Mark's favorite word immediately, and Salome will make haste and she will waste no time in carrying out the wishes of her mother Herodias. Now, verse 26 is probably or perhaps the most pitiable verse in the entire account. King Herod, we are told, is exceedingly sorry for what is about to take place, but this sorrow does not lead him to repentance. Instead, he will choose the fear of man over the fear of God, and he also will waste no time immediately sending an executioner to carry out the girl's instructions to bring John's head on a platter. Now, Proverbs chapter 6 provides a commentary. It says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and we will find at least three of them in this text. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. Well, these dark events in the life of John the Baptist provide a sobering illustration of today's big idea. Faithful proclamation will provoke fierce persecution until Christ returns. God, however, will use that very persecution to advance his kingdom. Let's turn now to the second movement in the message, that is excavating the light that is buried in this story, a light that is greater than the darkness of which we have just read. And that light is the light of the gospel. Now, you probably thought we only had four Gs in the sermon, but with the word gospel, we're going to go 5G this morning. So, as we dig deeper, we find within this passage the following gospel paradigm. Just as the sin of Herod and Herodias led to the death of the righteous prophet John, so also my sin and your sin and all of our sins killed the righteous Son of God. This is the doctrine of the cross, and this is the offense of the cross. It was you and me that put Jesus on the cross. When we exegete the darkness of Herod and Herodias, we also exegete ourselves, and we exegete the broken world in which we live. We live in a world of guilty consciences and lifetimes of regret, of corrupt kings. We live in a world of grievous marriages. A primary consequence of the fall in the Garden of Eden was the perversion of marriage in which men oppress women and women subvert men. From these broken marriages come a host of broken families and relationships. We live in a world of gluttonous banquets in which our disordered appetites make idols of the good gifts that God has given us. And we live in a world of gruesome executions where we regularly sacrifice children for the sake of sexual freedom through millions of abortions annually. We live in a world where nations and terrorist groups rise up unprovoked against innocent people and against other unsuspecting and peaceful nations. But here is the good news of this passage. John's sacrifice could not take away sins, but he pointed to a more perfect sacrifice. John was a forerunner and a type of Christ, but he was not the Christ. The death of Christ on the cross 
was more than sufficient for any and all of the sins committed in this dark text and committed down through the ages. The light of Christ's atoning death is greater than the darkness of the world. Now, one of the most uh, edifying aspects of, of reading church history is that it brings us into contact with spiritual biographies, stories of men and women whose pre-Christian lives exhibited great darkness, but in whom the light of Christ overcame that darkness. Somewhere around the year 1745, a young 20-year-old John Newton found himself engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. Newton's job was to kidnap innocent African men and women and force them onto slave ships where they would be transported to England. Newton would sexually abuse many of the slaves. Newton and others would pack the slaves like sardines into the ships in the lower compartments in inhumane conditions, causing many of them to die before arriving at their destination. John Newton was an evil man. He was a wicked man. He was a murderer, a slave trader, a fornicator, and a sex abuser. And he would be plagued and haunted by a guilty conscience for decades to come. But unlike King Herod, Newton repented. And over the decades, the light of Christ shone brighter than the darkness in which John Newton had lived. Newton would eventually work with William Wilberforce to successfully end the slave trade in the British Empire in the year 1807 and to become the father of anti-slavery and anti-sex trafficking movements throughout the world to this day. And of course, he would be the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton's conversion is one demonstration that the redeeming power of Christ's sacrifice foreshadowed in the dark text that we just read is brighter than all the darkness of human history. But what is the persecution of John the Baptist have to do with our lives in Santa Barbara? I want to turn now to our last point, which is examining our lives, applying the text. As we heard earlier, John the Baptist courageously preached to powerful authorities named Herod and Herodias, and he paid for it. Now, did you know that right now, whether we recognize it or not, we also are preaching to powerful authorities? Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Now, Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This morning, as we gather to hear the word taught, to sing the word, to pray the word, and as day by day and week by week, we build a Christ-centered community, crossing boundaries of race, ethnicity, language, economic status, education, life experience. We are preaching the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities 
in the heavenly places. Now, these are the same rulers and authorities in heavenly places that Paul names in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, just as John experienced opposition from Herod and Herodias, so also we will experience opposition from rulers and authorities in heavenly places, simply by the church courageously building up and being the church. Now, what does this persecution from rulers and authorities in heavenly places look like in Santa Barbara, California, 2024? Well, at least for the present, it seems that we have been spared some of the more intense suffering endured by much of the global church. Nevertheless, spiritual opposition remains real even in our city. Now, sometimes Satan will work through human authorities. Sometimes it looks like an adoption agency putting the brakes on an adoption because a Christian couple is not willing to affirm homosexuality. At some point in the future, it might look like a Christian college losing its accreditation because it teaches a biblical instead of a cultural view of gender. Sometimes satanic persecution works from inside churches, nurturing theological drift and gossip and sexual immorality to destroy churches. Sometimes satanic persecution attacks new converts by accusing them and telling them that their sins are actually not really forgiven, or by stirring up rage and ridicule from their family members who think their newfound faith is foolish, wrong-headed, and narrow-minded. And sometimes Satan attacks Christian families, doing his best to make marriages hard, to create walls of hostility between family members, or to harden resentments that can fester for decades. And sometimes Satan will persecute us by attacking our physical bodies, as he did with Job, as he did with the Apostle Paul, who spoke of his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. Sometimes it will look like chronic pain, mental illness, depression, unexplained illness that makes it hard to meet with God's people and to meet in prayer with the Lord himself. Church, as we enjoy a wonderful church life here, wonderful fellowship, rich worship. We are called to be alert and to be aware as the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms push back on us. I want to pause before I wrap up this morning. We've covered a lot of ground, and I just want to review where we've been before I close the message. We started by exegeting the darkness of the text, working our way through a guilty conscience, a grievous marriage, a gluttonous banquet, and a gruesome execution. We then looked beneath the darkness and we excavated the light. We saw that the sacrifice of John pointed to a more perfect sacrifice of Christ, which is sufficient to overcome all the darkness in our lives and all the darkness of human history. And then we examined our lives and saw that just as John preached to human authorities, 
so also we are preaching the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places simply by faithfully building the church. Therefore, what was true of John is also true of the church. Faithful proclamation will provoke fierce persecution until Christ returns. Well, as I conclude, I want to finish with encouragement. As we consider the realities that I have just described, I want to encourage us to lean into the vast treasure of the promises of God for this life and for the life to come. The Apostle John made it clear that greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. The Psalms speak over and over again of a God who answers prayer, a God who's close to the brokenhearted, a God who will overcome and provide victory for us. Jesus himself promised that he would be with us until the end of the age. And David, in Psalm 27, 13, proclaims, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Well, we don't have to look far to see that Psalm 27, that David, that I just quoted from David, is true and it's already been fulfilled in our lives. Each week in this church, we go from strength to strength as we worship together on Sundays and as we gather freely for spiritual encouragement at community groups and prayer meetings and meetings over coffee with brothers and sisters. Beyond all of these spiritual blessings, we have material blessings. We live in one of the most beautiful and agriculturally and ecologically rich places on the planet. We enjoy the mountains to the north, the Pacific Ocean to the south, peaches in the summer, strawberries in the spring, squash in the fall. We enjoy 27 species of whales and dolphins that display the glory of God in the Santa Barbara Channel. We enjoy 127 species of fish and edible sea life that make their way to our supermarkets and to our dinner tables in this land of abundance. We enjoy fresh roasted coffee, farmer's markets, expansive beaches, temperate weather, surgery without pain, streets without soldiers, and worship without fear. Truly, we have seen and we will continue to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Nevertheless, the greatest promises of God are not for this life. Our ultimate hope is in the life that is to come. As I close, I want to show again the pictures of the five men I showed earlier. We share something very significant in common with these men and with the body of Christ throughout the world. It is this, we are all waiting for that ultimate hope, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which all persecution will cease. John the Baptist was still waiting to see the kingdom when he died. John the Baptist, in the words of Hebrews 11, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. John the Baptist desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called his God, for he has prepared for John the Baptist a city. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the same 
city that God has prepared for us and for all who put their faith in Christ. The apostle John, when he was persecuted and he was in exile on the island of Patmos near the end of his life, had a vision of that city, which he wrote down for us. Hear now his words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these things are faithful and trustworthy and true. Join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this text. And and Lord, as we think about the reality of persecution, we do not want to be unfaithful to pray for these men and their families that are on the screen right now. Lord, I just want to pray that you would release these men, that you would do a miracle, that you would do what you did with the Apostle Peter as the church was praying for him. We agree together, Lord. We long for their release. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have prepared for us a city. And we look forward to the day when you will say of this church face to face that you are not ashamed to be called our God. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.